Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is a special episode of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, brought to you with the help of the good people of Hay Festival. What follows is a live recording of a discussion with two novelists, Fiona Mosley, whose book a shortlisted novel Elmet caused a stir last year, and Lisa McInerney, an Irish writer the TLS described as busily combining the traditions of hardcore Irish crime writing with fast-talking, foul-mouthed wit and gentle good humour. This took place earlier this year at Hay Festival in Cartagena in Colombia. The TLS will be at Hay Festival in Wales this year from May 24th until June the 3rd, so we hope to see you there. For now, though, here are Fiona Mosley and Lisa McInerney, introduced by Peter Florence. My name is Peter Florence, and it is my great honour and delight to introduce to you Lisa McInerney and Fiona Mosley. Um, we are going to be talking about their two extraordinary debut novels, Fiona's Elmet and Lisa's The Glorious Heresies. I suspect that we are going to talk about place, about uh, gender, about masculinity, about uh, gothic and noir ideas, about 15-year-olds coming into their blood, and about language. Um, Because they are both extraordinarily gifted with words. They have been garlanded with nominations and awards Lisa is the winner of the Bailey's International Prize. Fiona's book was shortlisted for the Man Booker Award, and we're grateful to the British Council who are celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Man Booker Prize for bringing her here, and to the European Union Walmart's project for bringing Lisa from Ireland. The main reason they're here together is that from the European side of the Atlantic, in the English language, This is as good as contemporary fiction gets. So it's my great pleasure and delight to introduce them both to you. Thank you. May I start by asking you both, and and Fiona first, to introduce the idea of place. Elmet is very specific, and to people who might only know Yorkshire from the Brontes, can you just give us uh, an insight into what it means? Yeah. Um, 
Hola, soy Fiona. <ríe> Me encanta estar aquí en Colombia. Voy a hablar en inglés, pero... Uh, hola. <ríe> uh, yeah, so... Um, uh, this book set in Yorkshire, which is, as you say, best known for uh, the Brontes, for uh, windswept cold landscapes, for coal mines, for woolen mills, for being... Uh, the heart of the British Industrial Revolution in the 19th century. Um, it's also known for some football teams, for a very parsimonious group of people. Yorkshire, Yorkshire people are, are known for being quite miserly, not particularly friendly. Um, but it's also, uh, when you get to know them, a wonderfully warm and, and warm place as well as a rugged place. Um, so, yeah, Yorkshire's in the north of England. Uh, it's not quite Scotland, but it's not far away. Um, it's the largest county. Um, it's got a very kind of long history. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a place that's kind of, you know, mixed economically and socially, which is one of the things that I wanted to discuss in this book. Um, you know, it's, it's had this sort of grand industrial heritage. And now that there aren't really so many uh, manufacturing jobs or... Um, or, or jobs at all, um, it's kind of down on its heels a bit in some places, struggling, struggling in other parts. And then there are other areas which, of course, are, are resurging. So it's, it's kind of, um, it's at a crossroads, I think. And it's physically hard, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's cold. <laughs> sí, es uh, hay mucho frío. No, es, es muy frío. Um, it's very cold, um, and it's it's not not always been a place of kind of agricultural bounty. You know, it's hard to hard to eke a living um, on those hills. You know, it's it's a place where you're more likely to find sheep than crops and pasture. Um, so yes, yeah, it's, it's a hard place. And the setting for this story is, although you talk about the industrial revolution, mm. it's it's a profoundly rural mm -hmm. setting, isn't it? And, and the nature of the land and, and the language of the land is very much part of your texture. Yes, it is. I mean, one of the things that, one of the questions that I wanted to explore in a way was, you know, there were all these people who were once very rural and they lived off the land and they, they lived uh, in villages and in an agricultural sort of way. And then the Industrial Revolution happened and they were kind of dragged from the fields into, into the mines and the mills. And now that the mines and the mills are no longer profitable, what happens to those people? So in, in this novel, this particular family that consists of a, a father and his teenage son and daughter, they go back to, back to the wild, I suppose, and they build themselves a house on land that they, they don't own um, in the middle of the woods. Um, so they're, they're a family who, you know, in, in the current day are trying to kind of reconcile themselves with, with the past and with the politics of the past. Um, and, and they're living outside any kind of urban or civic structure, aren't they? They're, in a sense, not just outside, but out with the law, too. Yeah, they are, they're very much outlaws, and that's, you know, it's a, it's a lovely word in English, outlaw, because, and I hope, I hope there's a a sort of a, uh, an appropriate translation in Spanish, but it, it is, it's outside the law, but also kind of outside the city, outside society. Um, and of course, the most, the most famous outlaw from that region was a person called Robin Hood. I, I don't know how much kind of, 
I mean, you know, there have been Hollywood films about Robin Hood, so maybe that particular character has kind of extended across the world. I don't know if people will be familiar with Robin Hood, but he's a kind of this medieval figure who goes off to live in the woods and shoots with a bow and arrow, and he kind of takes from the rich and gives to the poor. That's the, that's the Hollywood version of it. Um, but he's the most famous kind of outlaw from that region, and, I mean, it's, it's very different, and it is set in present day, but I think there are, there are echoes of, of that character and that... that Myth. Fiona, thank you. Lisa, can you introduce the transition from your gloriously named blog <laughs> to, to, to this location and what Cork means for an Irish writer to an audience who may be more familiar with Dublin? Oh, Dublin. I used to write a blog years ago called Arse End of Ireland um, because I lived in a very rural part of Ireland. And, but then it's, it's kind of a state of mind because everyone in Ireland says that their corner of Ireland is the arse end of Ireland. Everyone <laughs> is very depressed about Ireland all the time and where they're from in Ireland. But um, I lived for a long, long time in Cork as well. So I was kind of moving back between the arse end being, in my particular experience, South County Galway, but, which is on the west coast, and then Cork in the south. And I bounced between the two of them. Whenever I wrote fiction, it, the characters were coming out with Cork accents. And I like to write in the vernacular. I, I, I like the way Irish people speak. I'm not just bigging myself up there. Like I'm sure you all like how Irish people speak. But um, the, the way that um, Corkonians specifically use the language in Ireland, the Hiberno English, it's very, very lively. It's very sarcastic. It's, it's very playful. And yet when we think of Ireland's literary heritage, we tend to talk about Joyce and, and Beckett and, and all these kind of um, writers who either existed in Dublin or existed in exile. And we kind of forget about the rest of the country, which is amazing to me because it's the rest of the country where you find, I think, the most lively patterns, not just of, of speech and, and words, but also of thought. So for me, I really wanted to kind of to write about Cork. I don't know why more people don't write about Cork. Cork is Ireland's second city, and city is a... I don't know if you could call it a city in global terms because it's got 120,000 people living in it. So it's very, very small, Cork. And it works for the kind of story that I wrote because you have this city in which everybody knows everybody else and everybody's interested in everybody else. So it kind of is very fertile for that kind of thing. And can we just talk about timing? Because, Fiona, while your novel is contemporary, it, it has a sort of mythic, unspecific time. But your... Your book is very particular to part of the economic cycle of Ireland, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So Ireland has had, had this huge boom that started in the 90s, a big economic boom, started in the 90s and went up to around the, the year 2008 and it, when everything collapsed. So I think Ireland is a very interesting country in that it has had to redefine itself twice in the space of two decades. So we were this kind of very kind of rural, very backwards, what we thought very backwards country. Suddenly we were a technological giant. We were interested in fashion. We were, go we were owning houses on the continent. We were going off on yachts. And then suddenly we had no money again. So, you know, it, it, like, that to me is a very interesting thing to write about. And I know people would suggest that any kind of major social upheaval, we're not going to get any of the great novels about that until maybe 20, 30 years from now when people have the benefit of hindsight. Still for me felt a really interesting time to look at the people who, you can't even say 
people who suffered when the Celtic Tiger, as we called it, collapsed and died, but people who never noticed it in the first place. The people who didn't understand that we had, and then I, I'm one of them actually, I didn't notice any kind of great economic uh, surge. I never got any benefits out of it, so I'm going to write about it now. <laughs> and you two are dealing with a, a basically a society which is outlaw in its, in its outlook. Yeah, so I'm always interested in, in characters, in people who, who live on the fringes of things, and I, not necessarily just in the physical place, but also maybe in the way that they think about their place in society or whatever. These are the people that are most interesting, I think. People who are kind of seeing that, you know, the city operates well enough without them somewhere else in a different sphere, and they can't, either they reject it in the case of like Maureen, one of the characters, completely rejects it, or in the case of other characters like Georgie in this book, can't seem to find a way to access this kind of legitimate side of city life. So is that, like for her, she's an outlaw, not really by choice. It's kind of a, then you're not an outlaw at all, really. There's no spirit in that, is there? <laughs> Can we talk about the, the tightness of the group of people that you both use? Because they're both very specific, very intimate societies that we get to to in, to. to be exposed to and to join for that period of time. You've got a family as at the heart of your book, and actually, in a strange way, and in one very specific way, so, so of course, of you. Um, that idea of dealing with a teenager and using a teenager's voice to perceive the world is something that I imagine is both a technical challenge, but also a kind of a really interesting moral quandary for both of you. Yeah, and, and we both have teenage boys as well, kind of at, at the heart of our, our books, um, as well as teenage girls. But, you know, there's, there's a sort of a male kind of voice at the centre, certainly of mine. The, the narrator is a 14-year-old boy. Um, so for me, for me, the whole point of writing fiction is, to, is that it should be an immersive process. Um, and I... The reason that I enjoy it is because I enjoy thinking about how other people live and how other people think. So I was never going to write um, a book about, you know, someone in their in their twenties kind of finding their way after graduating from university and, you know, sort of coming from a relatively stable home. And you know, I just I find that really boring. Um, so I wanted I wanted to to totally immerse myself in, in somebody else and I think I chose someone very different from me with a very different experience because if I kind of went halfway it wouldn't be totally authentic I suppose I, it'd be, I'd, I'd be sort of wanting to, to bring in my own experiences a little bit so I, I, I wanted to just really take a leap um, take an imaginative leap and, and put myself totally somewhere else um, it was quite difficult to kind of sustain the voice of Daniel the 14 year old boy um, but it was, it was also a, a quite a rewarding thing. I mean, one of the things is that I had all sorts of political and social themes that I wanted to, to explore, themes to do with land ownership, wealth, gender, bodies. Um, but I didn't want to talk about those things with the benefit of a university education. I wanted to try and riddle through those things from somebody else's point of view and using their own vocabulary and, and things like that. You, your, your Daniel, who is the narrator, has a sister who's a year older than him, mm -hmm. um, they, and uh, they live with their father, who is this huge, gargantuan, mm -hmm. yeah. bare-knuckle fighter. 
who are man of violence and e extremity, but mm. not ever directed at them. No. Um, there are uh, interesting ways in which you play with our expectations. The boy wears his hair long, mm. is in some ways uh, could be perceived to be effeminate. The girl is harder, tougher, more physically mm. extreme. Um, were you starting out from an intention of wanting to play with those expectations, or did that emerge when you began to learn who they were? Um, a bit of both. I think certainly with Kathy, I, I had a crystallised idea of her, her character and her, her character arc, I suppose, um, with Daniel less so, but, but one of the things I wanted to explore with all of the three, with the three central characters was this idea of having a body which kind of is at odds with you know, your sort of internal sense of yourself. So, uh, and that's tr true of, of the two children. Kathy is, you know, she's a girl, and so people perceive her in one way, but she, she in many respects takes after her father a lot more than her brother does. You know, he's this big bare-knuckle boxer, and she kind of, she's following in, in his steps, but she, she can't physically. And then equally, um, you know, Daniel is, is a totally different kind of guy. You know, he's, yeah, he, he does kind of perform more traditional female roles, I suppose. Um, so I did want to have this kind of, you know, almost a trinity, because a, a trinity is kind of, you know, three in one. There were these, there were three, there was, there was one person in three different parts, in a way, I suppose. They're all kind of, they're all kind of encapsulating a very specific facet of what might be a, a whole identity, I suppose. If that makes sense, I don't know. Yeah, no, it absolutely does. Can I, can I just play with the word trinity, as you must have known <laughs> I was going to here. Um, <laughs> there is a holy trinity in your book, which is a really savage investigation of Catholicism and its effect on generations of modern Irish families. But the trinity that Maureen cites is not <laughs> Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It's, uh, what is it, the... the it's the priests priest and the, nuns the neighbors. And, yeah. Yeah, so... You, in this, in beginning this, whilst it is a, a picaresque, uh, wonderful journey through a city and a whole bunch of people, it's also, it's savage. It's an investigation of institutional trauma of women, particularly through the relationship with wanted and unwanted children. Yeah. Is that because that's an overriding theme that you're going to be drawn to whatever you write? Or did you want to try and come at it from a, an angle that might look yeah. less extreme? It's, a, it's very, I think it's very difficult to write a contemporary Irish novel without mentioning or having the Catholic Church and the effect of pretty much the collapse of the Catholic Church in Ireland, the complete moral erosion of the Catholic Church in Ireland in the 90s. It just, like, despite the fact that Ireland went from being a very, very religious country to a country in which people didn't trust the church, in the space of a decade, this, this happened. So it's this massive, like, drop, dropped off a cliff kind of social change. And yet, in Ireland, the fabric of Catholicism, the cultural side of Catholicism is woven so deeply into our thoughts about ourselves and our idea of ourselves that it's, it's impossible to write about Ireland and not have that. When I had a character, the character Maureen in this book, 
she comes home after 40 years in London to the son that she was forced to give up at birth because she was unmarried. This is just the character that I wanted to do. I want, and this would have been possibly the, the major social problem in her life. The way that women were, t were treated when she was a young woman, when she was 19 in, in 1970, the way that women were treated in Ireland, that would have been the defining characteristic almost for her. So, I mean, it wasn't a case of, of me going, I will explore this. I think I will write a great Irish Catholic novel. It, it's, it just kind of it suggested itself or it had to be done. It had to be included, if that makes sense. So. Yeah, and, but <coughs> whilst it had to be included, it comes inevitably to the very dramatic heart. Because on, while Fiona's book's climax is an extraordinarily, fabulously described piece of very explicit violence, your <laughs> heretical climax is actually a conversation between the character Maureen and a priest to whom she has gone to confess. Oh, do you think so? God, yes. Oh. I'm very do happy you, Do you not? This is really because people either love that scene or they think it's superfluous, which I, I find it amazing the way people react to that scene. I love that scene myself. I love the idea that here, you, so you have this woman, she, she goes to, to confession in Ireland. We, we should, it's not, it's not a terrible spoiler to explain the principal thing she has to confess, is oh, it? Oh God, yeah, I forgot. Um, so the, the, <laughs> the, the thing that starts the story in The Glorious Heresies is Maureen, this lady who at this point is 59 at the very, very start of the novel. She finds an intruder in her home one night. She picks up a religious ornament and hits him over the head and kills him accidentally. And then this, this is something that, I, you can't even say she feels guilty. She feels something. She's, she's mad, this woman. She's a, so she, the, the guilt she feels is more down to how she felt that this man was also a kind of a wretch and, and the way that Ireland treats its outcasts and stuff like that. So it's a kind of a strange, but anyway, she decides to go to confession and as the, the, this is not really that much of a spoiler either, but as the course of the conversation goes on, we, we realize that she is not confessing to the priest. She is attempting to, to get him to confess to her. Because as far as she is concerned, any of the, the problems that she has brought to Ireland, any of, the things that, any of the things that she has done wrong, any of her sins, could not possibly ever compete with the sins of the church that affected Ireland the way it did. But the interesting, I, I, the other thing about that scene is the priest, I think, sounds quite normal. He seems to be quite a, he's just tr do, trying to do his job, this guy. And this mad woman comes in and starts ranting at him, you know. So I, I, and I wanted that too. I wanted to kind of show that we have this character who's on a, a kind of a vendetta. She is trying to attack this vision of an Ireland that hasn't existed for 40 years. It's almost a, a waste of her energy in some ways. Yeah. The people who think it's superfluous are just wrong. <laughs> it's brilliant. Um, can we talk um, a little bit, Fiona, about the economics that comes into this story? Because into this, there's a wonderful word you use, sylvan, which I haven't read for, feels like 120 years. Um, into this family comes inevitably at some point the tyrannical, aggressive, cruel landowner, um, Price, mm. gloriously named. Um, and it becomes... It wasn't so subtle, that <laughs> No, not subtle. Um, 
and it becomes an absolute clash of uh, culture and idea and humanity. Um, and again, is that where you were starting out to reach? Um, yes and no. Uh, like, like I say, I, I always wanted to explore land and the relationship with the land and, and the ownership of property. Um, you know, I started writing the novel when I, I was living in London and, um, you know, just sort of paying all my money to a, to a landlord because that's... The, the situation in London is, is quite extreme in, in terms of uh, property and it's very, very, very expensive. So you sort of you pay an awful lot of money to, to live there. So I, I think I was just a bit frustrated with that maybe and, and I wanted to explore what it actually means to kind of to own a piece of land on which you live and... and you know, these are kind of the the, the boundaries of, of the landscape are, have been passed down to us from from previous generations. Be it the boundaries of a country, or the boundaries of your back garden, or the the boundaries of your town. Um, so I wanted to explore that relationship. And yeah, I think I think I did want there to be a situation where this this community get behind this family who've built a house themselves on land they don't own. And there's a kind of collective action, which is sort of reminiscent of the kind of uh, the collective action of the 1980s in in, in Britain. Um, you know, large large scale protests, strikes, people sort of getting together and saying, actually, let's let's disrupt this a little bit. Um, so I wanted to to present yeah present Price as kind of uh, the archetypal figure of of his class in a way, I suppose. Um, you know, the loaded term, but I, I think that's that's what I wanted to do, um, and set him at odds with with the others. Yeah. Um, Lisa, can you talk a little bit about uh, the romantic relationship that is the other sort of beating heart of the book between Kareen and your hero Ryan? Ah. Uh, uh, so one of the other, or the other kind of main character. I, I kind of think the heart of the book. Yeah, the, absolutely, the heart of the book is is Ryan. At the start he's 15 years of age and he's just started going out with a girl called Kareen who he's liked for ages so this is great news for him. And throughout the book I think that their affection for each other and loyalty to each other and love for each other is kind of the one kind of pure and nice thing that happens in this society in which elderly women kill people with religious ornaments. So. <laughs> But yet, as it goes on, it's, it kind of becomes more and more strange. It becomes more and more difficult as kind of the outside world really kind of, I guess, encroaches on them too. I don't know. But they're both books about what the context and what the nurture mm. of a society that wraps itself around you does to young people, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, for Ryan... He is like he's the son of an alcoholic father. His mother is dead. Society has no real, or the, the the community he lives in has no real interest in in protecting him because, as a boy, he doesn't really deserve protection. He's not a, he's not you know he's a young man. Therefore, he's probably going to be dangerous and disruptive anyway. He's a young working class man, so he's going to go bad at some point. So there is no kind of nurturing. And then people who do try try in such mealy mouthed kind of ways. So you have his his principal at school is kind of making some sort of subtle overtures to let me help you but it's never really happening 
as like there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of society kind of expectations for Ryan are so low that they're kind of molding him into what they presume he is going to eventually be. Whereas Kareen, who has the same social economic background as Ryan, she still she has good parents who love her and nurture her and look after her and want her to be ambitious. And so she is able to navigate the city much better than he is. He just keeps falling off paths and into bushes and it's just yeah. <laughs> when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At Bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Fiona, can you just, before we hear a bit of each of these books, can you talk a little bit about Daddy, the, the yeah. father John, whom we know principally as Daddy yeah. through his son, this is, we've described the scale of him and what he does, and he has a sort of mythic, uh, almost sort of Anglo-Saxon yeah. uh, context, doesn't he? Yeah, so, um, so the father in the book is called, well, his real name is John, but he's called Daddy throughout by his children. Um, I wanted to use that word because... The word daddy in English has, has slightly ambiguous connotations. It's, it's something that very young children call their father. It's not, it's not something that you'd really continue to, to call your father later on. You know, if I called my own father daddy, people would think that was a bit odd. Um, and yet equally, the word daddy is connected to all sorts of things which have kind of sort of sexual undertones. You know, a sort of sugar daddy is is a kind of an older man who has a sort of who's very rich and has a much younger wife and you know there were all sorts of slightly ambiguous dodgy things about the word so i so i wanted to call him that to to give him this this ambiguous quality but to also reinforce how how um childish his his children are um and how sort of much they depend on him um but yeah he's this he's this larger than life character he um he's He's absolutely enormous. He's he's not he's not realistic. He's not. I mean, he's like seven foot tall or something. You know, nobody really knows. He 
he's not he's not a real person that you would meet walking down the street he is totally supposed to be straight out of mythology or straight out of fiction um and yeah he's a bare knuckle boxer that's how he makes his living um in illegal boxing matches um and the thing that i wanted to do with him was to present a kind of archetype uh, a masculine archetype i suppose um i wanted him to to be reminiscent of of the kinds of the kinds of figures you might encounter in in yeah mythology or or in a in american western or in you know uh classical texts um this figure who kind of reoccurs and reoccurs a kind of goliath if you like um and so i wanted to 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 take him on this this familiar journey of being this this hero almost throughout the book and then i wanted to entirely undercut that at the end and i don't think it spoils too much by saying i wanted to build up this sense that the book is all about him and actually it's it's kind of not all about him he, he's he's secondary um so yeah that's what i wanted to do with, and, with and in playing with that, those ideas of mythology um you're also inevitably remaking the narrative voice to kind of embrace those ideas aren't you because whilst on the one hand you have this 14-year-old narrator who needs to be uh hyper aware and sensitive to what he hears as he's around him you've also got an a sort of embracing of something that feels a bit like hardy feels a bit like Cormac McCarthy you you're laying down myth and legend mm. and at the same time you're playing with uh in in linguistic terms you're playing with the poetry of nature and the epigraph that you quote and that the word elmet we know if we know at all from Ted Hughes mm. um so there's there's that third aspect of yeah. the voice that you need to find and 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 manipulate yes um yeah <laughs> yes uh, i i i don't know i mean i i did draw on those influences that you mentioned all of them um i think i think i i want because the book is so much about bodies and about these characters connections with their bodies and about landscape i wanted i wanted the language to be to be very sensual in a way i i wanted i wanted the reader to be able to really kind of touch and see and smell and hear things i i wanted them to be totally immersed which isn't isn't always necessary in in fiction i don't think i mean i like a lot of books which don't don't have that at all which are just you know um a bit more a bit more detached but because it is all about material things i wanted there to be a real materiality to the to the prose i suppose um can can i ask you to read um and i think this is going to be very hard to translate but it's a very short piece so don't necessarily listen to and, and i'd ask the interpreters just to just stop for a second just listen to the music of this opening to get a sense of what the voice that fiona is using is sounding like so just the opening bit a cast no shadow smoke rests behind me and daylight is stifled I count sleepers and the numbers rush. I count rivets and bolts. I walk north. My first two steps are slow, languid. I am unsure of the direction, but in that initial choice I am pinned. I have passed through the turnstile and the gate is locked. I still smell embers 
the charred outline of a sinuous wreck. I hear those voices again, the men and the girl, the rage, the fear, the resolve, then those ruinous vibrations coursing through wood and the lick of the flames, the hot, dry spit, the sister with blood on her skin and that land put to waste. I keep to the railway tracks. I hear an engine far off in the distance and duck behind a hawthorn. There are no passengers, only freight. Steel wagons emblazoned with rogue emblems, the heraldry of youth long grown old. Rust and grit and decades of smog. Rain comes then stops. The weeds are drenched. The soles of my shoes squeak against the grasses. If my muscles begin to ache, I do not reckon with them. I run, I walk, I run some more, I drag my feet, I rest. I drink from alcoves into which rainwater has pooled. I rise, I walk. Thank you. Lisa, can I just pick up on what you said right at the beginning about hearing cork voices for your characters? That makes me sound a bit mad. <laughs> you say a bit mad like that's a bad thing. Um, there's a kind of glorious, high-energy, profane vibrancy to the the way you write, and it's full of spectacular neologisms, and well, they feel to a, a, a British reader, like neologisms, they may just be absolute normal slang for... <laughs> Possibly, yeah. yeah. Possibly. Uh, it's inventive, it's very uh, energetic. The, the voice that that plays with must take an incredible amount of uh, revision, intense uh, reworking, because it doesn't... I'm assuming that just isn't a, a stream of consciousness for you. You've got to really no. work it. No, no, I don't. I don't really have to, to work it. It is kind of very much the way Irish people speak, but obviously a kind of a, a heightened version of it, a more literary version of it. But it, it, it does, I think, like I can't, I can't take credit for a lot of that because a lot of that comes from the speech patterns of the people around me. And it, it's quite funny because I think a, a good way of illustrating perhaps a particular quirk of Irish speak. I was at a, a festival, an event like this before, and somebody asked a question of me and said, is it difficult writing from the male point of view for a working class uh, man or boy because they never speak in real life? I said, where? Where do they not speak? Not in my experience. You know? So, I mean, it's, it's just a case of hopefully having an ear for it and capturing it and then trying to make it a little bit more palatable, but not too much more palatable. I think, I think it's fun for language if you have to work at understanding a particular kind of strain of somebody else's speech. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't like to... I don't like Irish books where they're kind of scrubbed of all the colloquialisms and all the, all the kind of things that make them particularly Irish. I don't like, you know, books from anywhere that don't feel like they're from that place. And I think what is, what is place, what is home, for a lot of us, it's how we talk and it's how we think, and that's hopefully what I wanted to Do capture. Do you feel different about readers who aren't Irish? In what sense? Well, because... <laughs> they're more attractive. <laughs> a reader who isn't Irish doesn't come with the vocabulary, doesn't come mm. with the rhythms, and that you have to educate them into it. 
you have to do that much more work, I guess. I was, I was very worried um, about readers who aren't Irish, and not, not just readers who, whose first language is a different language to English, but even English readers, American readers. I was very concerned about this. But I don't think that's been the case. I think, I think for a lot of readers, from what I could tell, once they kind of got into the, the, the swing of the language, they kind of gave themselves over to it and said, let's, let's go on this ride and see what happens. You know, I mean, readers are open-minded that way, aren't they? I mean, they, they don't want to be spoon-fed. They want to kind of see what, where these words will take them. And do you literally hear it then? Is it, is it when, in, in the first way that it comes to you, an oral experience rather than something that's transcribed? It's all, it's all speech for me. I, I have a lot of characters in my head. A lot of these characters have all existed in one form or another in my head for so long, but they've existed as voices or as snatches of dialogue or... And for me, it's really easy to write dialogue. I could write it all day long, but I find everything else, you know, the actual writing, the prose and setting and stuff, I find that very difficult. I find I've, I've written something where I go, oh, wow, I wrote the most amazing thing today. And I look back over and it's like, oh, this is a screenplay. I've forgotten to actually put some, some fiction in here, some prose. <laughs> so why do you bother? Because I love it. Because no, I, I mean, why do you bother writing always, fiction? Why do you because just write there's always, the Well, it's a control thing. <laughs> but there's always something that you have to work on, isn't there, as a writer? There's always something that you are trying to catch, that you want to be better at, that you want to, to build this picture of something that's in your head, and you want to do it in all sorts of ways, not just through dialogue, but through, through everything, all the tools that you have available to you. Some of these tools that you're not very good at, but my God, you're going to try. So I'm, I'm not very good at dialogue, and that's the thing which I try and... Well, with the thing I'm writing at the moment, I'm trying and trying and trying and trying to improve at because I want to... You know, there's not a huge amount of dialogue in this book for good reason. I'm not great at it. So I, that's the thing which I'm focusing on. You know, we, should, we should join up and we should, just yeah, write, write one write book together. together. It would yeah. be very good. <laughs> <laughs> can we hear, just before opening this to the, the floor, can we hear a bit of um, the yeah. beginning of this book? Yes. I'm going to jump on slightly from the beginning because I'm going to read a bit of Maureen, I think. So. Maureen had just killed a man. Well, she didn't mean to do it. She'd barely need to prove that, she thought. No one would look at a 59-year-old slip of a whip like her and see a killer. When you saw them on the telly, the broken ones who tore asunder all around them, they always looked a bit off. Too much attention from handsy uncles, too few green vegetables, faces like bags of triangles and eyes like buttons on sticks. Pass one on the street and you'd be straight into the gardie, suggesting that they tail the lurching loon if they're looking for a promotion to bring home to the mammy and belly go backwards. Well, not Maureen. Her face had a habit of sliding into a scowl between intentional expressions, but looking like a string of piss wasn't enough to have the gardie probing your perversions. There'd have been no scandals in the church at all, she thought, if the Gardaí had ever had minds honed so. <laughs> um, thank you both very much indeed. We've got, I think, 15 minutes or so um, for anyone in the audience to ask questions if they'd like to. Um, we will uh, have roving mics that can be brought to you if you'd like to ask a question, um, and we can get them translated and try and answer as truthfully as we can. Would anybody like to, to start? 
Yeah, there's a question there. All right. Uh, recently, we've had a, a debate in Colombia uh, about women in literature. There was a, the Ministry of Culture made a list of uh, writers who, who were supposed to go to France and some event, and uh, didn't choose any women. Uh, and since then, this been this because I think it's it's a good year for women I think it's the start of a revolution where women are really taking their place they deserve uh, how, how hard is it uh, for you to as women writers to, to put yourself out there uh, in your case in Ireland which being a Catholic country like ours, uh, it's basically male-dominated. And uh, in, your, in, in your case in, in England, uh, how hard has it been? Hmm. That's really interesting because you're right in that it's a good time to be a woman writer, I think, because people are actively seeking out female voices where maybe they weren't before. Uh, but that said, in terms of difficulty, it is, it's very hard for me to, to, to answer that because I'm still very much at the start of my career. So at that, if there were opportunities that I didn't get or something that, that, you know, some sort of gender bias, I wouldn't necessarily have noticed at this stage. I think it's the older women writers who have been at it for a long time who can see a pattern that are much better able to to answer that or to kind of to point out where things need to be improved. So I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm still only learning. In terms of the Irish question, <laughs> so all of our great writers, the great Irish writers, they're all men. So they're all like Oscar Wilde, James Joyce, Samuel Beckett, W.B. Yeats. When you come to a lot of the Irish character and tourism is based on our writers. So when you go to Ireland, you can buy souvenirs of all our writers and you can buy tea towels, you know, for cleaning the dishes with faces of our great writers on them. There's a very famous poster. And a few years ago, it was pointed out, and the Irish Times, our newspaper, started a campaign. There was no women on, on this picture. There were no Irish female writers. They didn't exist. They weren't real. So in recent years, because people have, have noticed this and kind of seen that can't be right, surely women were writing, you know? So they have been trying to redress that balance and there is kind of a lot of, there's a push now to kind of make things more inclusive. Not just for us now, but for women writers who never took their place in the canon and should have. Yeah, I, I would echo exactly what, what Lisa said. Um, I too haven't been doing this long enough to have experienced the kinds of, the kinds of patterns that the older, older women writers have experienced. Um, the only thing I can comment on from my own perspective, and I think, I mean, I've just met Lisa today, but I've, I've read interviews with her, and the only kind of similarity I can, can think of, or the only difficulty is that, so there's, there's quite a bit of violence in this book. I mean, people sort of talk about it being very violent, and I would say, well, I mean, there's so much violence, you know, just on kind of, just everywhere, that it's, it's no more violent than, you know, just your average cop show or something. But, um, but people have been quite shocked that I've written a book with a very kind of violent 
violent climax because they meet me and I'm a young woman and and I'm quite friendly. I, I try to be a friendly person, and they're, and they're sort of particularly shocked by the violence because it, I think it, because it's for me and I'm a, a young woman, and they just don't expect it. Um, which is strange because women know a lot about violence. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's the only thing I've noticed, and I think that from reading interviews of Lisa, you've you found that people have been shocked by your swearing and things, swearing. and they wouldn't be shocked if you were a man. But <laughs> <laughs> I swear a lot. All Irish people swear a lot. It's, it's it's nothing unusual in Ireland. But it's something you said earlier that's quite interesting. Um, you said that you weren't interested necessarily in writing about a life that was too close to your own and I was like thank god I was like, <laughs> I was like I, that drives me up the wall when writers write about writers right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. but I think a lot of people readers, publishers, other writers when they see young women writing they almost immediately assume it's going to be autobiographical it's going to be very it's going to be about a young woman writer you know, so I think it's it's almost the kind of divide there between the violence. They're kind of, but but she doesn't look violent, you know, because they, they can, it's it's a strange thing know? that it's still assumed that female writing is is autobiographical or yeah. very personal, whereas male writers write about the human experience. You see, we don't write about the human experience. Yeah, yeah. It's also, it's also generational, isn't it? It because is, definitely. When, when, I, they, when they do the Irish tea towel in 20 years' time, there'll be you be and me. Sally Rooney, just, mm-hmm. just you. Just me. Just <laughs> <laughs> so there'll, be, there'll be a whole group of people who are now in their yeah. 30s who are all women who will be coming through, and they don't seem to be the same generation of men coming through. Oh, I don't know. Fair? In Ireland... I think there's a lot of there's a lot of very I mean you've got Kevin Barry you've got Gavin Corbett you've got Colin Barrett you've got Rob Doyle you've got you see these you know I actually think that there's there's one thing I'm I'm really 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 glad about the fact that we're putting all this focus on females' voices now this is very very important but it does drive me slightly mad when when people say. I prefer female writers because male writers are rubbish. It's like, that's, that's nonsensical. I know that's not what you said, Peter, but that's nonsensical as well. I was well. just talking about who gets on the tea towels. <laughs> the, well, the lads will get on the tea towel. They can, they can have a corner at the bottom of the tea towel. Supposing <laughs> that the only, the only two things where women and men compete absolutely equally happen to be three-day event equestrianism and literary fiction. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, who else would like to ask a question? Uh, yes, one there and then from the back, please. Buenas tardes. Buenas tardes. Ustedes estarán recordando las palabras de un maestro que decía que que es curiosa la suerte del escritor que al principio es barroco, vanidosamente barroco, y con el paso del tiempo, si le son propicios los astros, adquieren no la sencillez, que no es nada, sino la secreta y modesta complejidad. Yo quería preguntarles eh, un poco sobre la, la, la carpintería de cada una como escritora, cómo arman sus estructuras, qué, cuál es el método el método de escritura de, de ustedes y qué piensan de, de, de esta reflexión de, 
de uno de los grandes escritores latinoamericanos. It's a tough one, writing method and, and, and kind of deciding what kind of a writer you're going to be and how you're going to get there, how you're going to write, structure, theme, all these things. It's, it's, it's quite difficult. It's especially difficult, I think, if, if you come from a country like, where, <laughs> where you have a massive weight of literary heritage there to kind of battle against, to kind of carve your own space out of. You don't want to be too much like, like the people who came before. You want to kind of show your own, your own themes, interests, you, your own kind of depiction of your country. It's quite interesting. I, I find it kind of, I, I don't really have any particular method of writing. I'm, I'm kind of, what do they call it, flying by the seat of my pants. I have no idea what I'm doing, to be honest, most of the time. I don't know if I set out in any case to try to be more or try to kind of show off what I can do. And then later, then I will decide that I can kind of become a, a writer that is more economical. I don't think in those terms. I, I just write what comes to mind. I don't try to think too much about process. I think if you think too much about process, you won't succeed, almost. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, it makes yeah, sense. It, it yeah, just, it, it almost feels like then you're not writing what you want to write. You're not writing, you're not doing this depiction of your country, of your, your state of mind, of your characters. Instead, you're more concerned about the book as a product and where it is going to be, where it is going to fit in the history of literature. And that, that seems not productive. Mm. I don't know. So... So with this one, I, I mean, I, the motivation behind writing the book was just to have something to do. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you know, I've been interviewing writers for 30 years. <laughs> I have never heard anybody be that honest before. So, I mean, but, you know, I think, I, think, I think things like this do come from... from Adversity, you know, and I, I don't want to overstate my adversity in the grand scheme of the world. I've had a very nice life, but I was very, you know, I was just in my 20s and I just didn't know what I was going to do with my life and I was just didn't know what the future held. And, you know, these aren't, these are very middle class problems. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, I was just, I, I just had no idea what to do. And I just wanted, I had this sort of sense of despair and I just wanted to, to, to work at something, to have a project, to, to distract me and something which, which I could, could put all of my creative energy into, which I wasn't doing at the work I was doing at, at that moment. And I just wanted the sensation of finishing something um, because I, I'm notorious for starting projects and not finishing them, whether it's, you know, writing or cleaning the house. Um, <laughs> so I just... I. I just kind of kept at it and I, I had lots of ideas and I, I tried to kind of follow the arc of a, of a very traditional story, a kind of saga or a western or something like that and, and I just, I always thought that this was just my practice run in a way or this, 
I didn't necessarily know that this would ever be published or that, that it'd be a real thing that other people have read and that are talking about. That's still an extraordinary thing. So I just, I just, I didn't really think about much. <laughs> I mean, I thought about ideas, but I didn't, I didn't think about process, I suppose. I just, you know, I had, I had ideas I wanted to explore and I had characters I wanted to explore, but I never really, I always saw this as a kind of story or a project. I never really saw it as a, a book, if that makes sense. The, the distinction between a, a story and a book is, you know, is one which I've only thought about after the fact, I think. God, I've been trying to work out what it was about the folkloric element. And it's a Western. It's a Western, yeah, <laughs> it is. It's a Western. <laughs> okay. Which is, of course, America's folklore, and it's you yeah, know, yeah. Based, based on, based on yeah. Icelandic sagas and all sorts of medieval sagas, yeah. But One Western. of the things I love about this book is that there is, running through the book, the, an awareness of this huge railway line, which you can't see and they can't see you, but it's always there and it's just going past you. There are lives just going past you all mm. the time, completely oblivious. I absolutely wanted to capture that. It begins, uh, I mean, not right, yeah, it begins with a railway line and it ends with a railway line and it's very specifically the one which runs from London to Edinburgh, um, uh, north to south, and I, you know, that was kind of symbolic, I suppose, and the people going past you all the time. And also, I finished the novel just after the, I mean, you know, I'm not... English people abroad, or British people, I should say, abroad, kind of tend to talk about Brexit in these days. Um, I don't want to talk about that, but I, I finished it just after we'd had the, the Brexit vote and the country seemed hugely divided and, and it was like, oh, where shall I go? And, you know, I don't think it gives too much away to say that one of the characters has a kind of decision to sort of walk, walk away and walk north or south. And I think that was sort of, I don't know, it was all, all informed by these kind of... <laughs> Big, <laughs> big kind of emotions about the nation state, I think. I don't know. <laughs> We've got time for one more question, but before, uh, from, from back there, before we do, there will be time, if you'd like to, to um, talk to the authors afterwards where they'll be signing books outside, if you'd like to talk to them one-to-one. -one. Um, yeah, question there. I know that you both just said that you don't talk about, pro or you don't think about process when you're writing your novels, but for somebody who has no aspiration to write any novel, because I have no capability of doing it, I'm curious about a couple of practical aspects. The first is, uh, if you think back on Anthony Trollope, who wrote 10 pages or so a day, woke up and did it in the morning, and then had the rest of the day free, I'm curious as to whether, in fact, you try and write your novels first draft quickly, beginning to end, so at least you know the full roadmap, or whether you buff every page before you go on to the second page. And the second question is related to it, and that is that in the course of actually writing the novels, have you ever actually meaningfully changed the plot because of something that uh, struck you when you're halfway across the river? Um, Shall I go first? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so I, I think about Anthony Trollope all the time, in fact. I mean, really all the time. Not only because I, I really enjoy um, uh, particularly his political series, but, but also because of his, his work ethic. Um, you know, he was working for the, I think, the post office and he was getting up and writing huge amounts. You know, also, like, apparently Voltaire wrote 5,000 words every morning. It's just, just these, you know, ridiculous things. Um, and I suppose when I think about myself, I've always considered myself to be 
a bit of a lazy person. Certainly, my mother would concur with that. Um, you know, I always thought that I was somebody who'd maybe kind of had ideas, but was, would, would not be able to actually put the work in. And what I discovered with this book is that writing a book just takes a, a lot of time, and there is no getting away from there's no getting away from the fact that it, it takes hours and hours and hours and hours, and there's no there's no quick fix. It's you know. It's something, it's something that you can't just blag your way through, really. Um, so that was a, a salutary lesson. Um, but, it, it, yeah, I mean, I, I, I tried to write this from beginning to end in, in direct answer to your question. Um, and, yes, there were... This, this book was a lot longer. It, it, I mean, 20,000 words have been cut, and some of those things were instrumental to the plot but I guess they weren't all that necessary because they've been cut and it still <laughs> works <laughs> in terms of that kind of process I always kind of uh, when I when I wrote the glorious heresies I wrote it really 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 quickly that doesn't mean there was there weren't any hours and the hours were all there they were just all at the same time like, it was just in the space of four months, I think I finished the first draft beginning to end, and I wrote thousands of words a day. And I figured that this would be the same for all my novels, that I would be able to do this. And this hasn't, it hasn't been the case at all, because your life changes, your inspiration changes, the things you want to do with the novel changes, and therefore the process changes. I used to say that I had a process of, I would start in the morning, I would get up, I would bring the dog out, I would go for a walk or a run, I would come back, I would sit down, I would write a thousand words, and I was not allowed to finish for the day unless I had written the thousand words. And I still kind of adhere to that, more or less. But it's also, it's more, it's not as easy as it was for me when I wrote The Glorious Heresies, I was at home, I didn't have anything else to do apart from right, now I have other things to do, like come to beautiful Cartagena, and when I should be at home writing, really, and working very hard. So I've, I've tried to be less rigid about this idea of process, and I, you know, I always say, oh, I can't write when I'm on the road, I can't write if I'm not at home, and I have to kind of force myself to change that, because otherwise it won't get done. And in terms of plots changing halfway through, oh my God, yes, plots change halfway through a sentence for me sometimes. It's like, <laughs> I have a very fine idea, I'm going in that direction, and suddenly I go, but what if this happened? And then you go off on that thing. After I finished the first draft of The Glorious Heresies, um, a friend of mine read it, and he said, you've got these two great characters and they never meet. And it hadn't even occurred to me. And then I rewrote the end of that, so I had... It's not the two you're thinking of. <laughs> I rewrote the, or like a, a part towards the end of the book where I had that, and, and then suddenly other things suggested itself. But I think when you're writing, even the bits that you have written down, they don't become frozen on the page. They're still swirling around in your head. Things are still very nebulous, and you can still kind of choose strands to kind of work with and stuff. So the book is only... What's the saying? A book is never finished. It's just abandoned. You know, there are two abandoned books there. I've not heard that, but that's perfect, yeah. <laughs> I made it up, it's my quote. <laughs> we should say that you abandoned this one so much that you wrote the sequel. <laughs> it is, actually. Yeah. I, have, I had an idea in my head that I want to write three books set in Cork and Ireland, which are, they're not going to be a trilogy in the sense that you won't have to have read the first one to read the second one, that kind of thing, I hope. But they will have the same set of characters and kind of stuff like that, so I kind of 
I'm, I'm, I have a very small uh, ambition to capture Ireland's soul in, in three books. <laughs> Don't give me that look, Peter. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm sure she will. Um, I am sure she will, actually. So I don't mean to sound that anything other than with absolute confidence. Um, thank you both very much indeed. Thank you for being such a great audience. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.